Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. You don't have to love football as I do. You certainly don't need to love Real Madrid. You don't have to, but you'd be a fool not to, marvel at the prowess of the 22-year-old Brazilian ace Vinicius Jr. as he tears down the wing, cutting through defences at every level, playing for Real Madrid in the Spanish Premier League. But you'd have to be, if you were still alive, a human being with sentient feelings, disgusted at what happened to him at the weekend in the Spanish city of Valencia. He's a black player, a brilliant black player. Anyone would be privileged to have seen him play in his pump, even if it was your team's defense that he was ripping through. But tens of thousands, not a tiny minority, not a group of malevolent malcontents, but virtually the entire crowd of supporters at Valencia on Sunday chanted monkey noises throughout the entire game. The manager of Real Madrid tried to get the game stopped. So noxious, vicious, incredible, virulent, was the racist chanting against Vinicius Jr. throughout that game. The referee didn't stop the game. He didn't even give a red card to the man who caught Vinicius in a headlock in a picture that will live forever. He sent off Vinicius himself, that's right, the victim of tens of thousands of grown men chanting monkey noises was the only person red-carded in the game. Of course, there is much fluttering in the dovecots of the football establishment. They have spent a fortune promoting respect, respect for people's difference. They have done nothing to force the authorities in Spain to stop what has now been two seasons long of systematic monkey chanting at a 22-year-old boy earning his living, entertaining millions as a brilliant young footballer. Why do I dwell upon it? Well, because nothing like that could ever happen in an English football stadium. And why am I making that point? Because we were told by the supporters of the European Union that we needed the Europeans to civilize us. That if we in Britain did not have 
these chains which bound us to the European Union, we would sink beneath a wave of racism, we would trash every civilized value. We were like Norsemen in the woods, painting our faces blue, and only the civilized Europeans could save us from that fate. But the truth is rather different. When Joseph Borrell, the Spanish politician who doubles as the European Union's foreign minister, told us that Europe was a garden and outside of it was a jungle, and that jungle might invade the garden. I myself was profoundly affected, though I am, of course, a European and glad to be so. I marvel at European culture. I marvel at European achievement. I marvel at some of European history. I love that continent. But it ain't no garden, bruv. As a matter of fact, the political class in country after country across the European Union has reduced their own cities to jungles. Take a look around if you don't believe me. I have been in seven European capitals in the last seven months, and every single one of them has fallen or is in the process of falling. Mass poverty stalks these lands. Racism stalks these lands as a result of the displacement of masses of people from the jungle countries, as Borrell would have it, by our wars, our bombardments, our regime change operations our destabilization and impoverishment, deliberate impoverishment of countries in the developing world, we have unleashed a tidal wave of mass movements of people who are now settling or trying to in European countries, in European capital cities, in big conurbations right across the continent. And the result is the kind of poisonous, noxious racism that we saw in Spain last Sunday. I have heard nothing from Borrell after the events in his home country. I don't expect to because the truth is we have a political class in Europe that is committing national suicide, is committing European suicide. We blew the doors off Libya through which many of these people, desperate people, are having to take to the waves of the Mediterranean. We continue to fuel wars everywhere. We continue to pick sides in civil conflicts and arm them and build the conflagrations. We continue to destabilize the rest of the world for our own selfish purposes. And then we wonder at the consequences when they arrive on our shores. It is a remarkable thing. As Robert Burns, my national poet, put it, 
the greatest gift that God would give us would be to see ourselves as others see us. I watched again mouth open at the interview of the BBC's Stephen Sacker with the Secretary General of the ruling African National Congress of South Africa on BBC World Television just the other day. I just watched the highlights, the clips of that interview. In it, you could see in microcosm our problem, our British problem, our European problem. Sakor, a supercilious, sneering, arrogant, overpaid oath, puts to the Secretary General as an accusation that South Africa is not joining the garden in shunning, sanctioning, and otherwise ostracizing the Russian Federation, a Russian Federation which gave the ANC everything that they needed to overthrow apartheid, free Mandela, and become a dignified country for the first time. Why, Asako, are you supporting Russia when it is committing these war crimes in Ukraine? The ANC Secretary General cackled his contempt in the words of the great Glenn Greenwald, the Brazil-based journalist extraordinaire, cackled his contempt at this question from the BBC. What about your wars, your invasions, your occupations? What about what you did in Libya, in Afghanistan, in Iraq? Have you arrested any of the people who committed those crimes? The BBC man was visibly shocked and that is the nub of my point. They simply cannot see themselves as others see them. Borrell cannot see how calling the rest of the world a jungle and his own country a garden is so profoundly, deeply offensive as well as being comprehensively wrong. Amy Klubichar, a US senator for Minnesota, today tweeted a picture of ruined buildings in Bakhmut and described it in two words, pure evil. The senator for Minnesota, I used to know, I never thought they could get a worse senator, but Amy Klobuchar is clearly one of them. If she thinks ruined buildings in Bakhmut are pure evil, then she doesn't know many things. For example, wait till she sees, as Caleb Mopan put it tonight, the results of Ukrainian bombardment of women and children and civilians for eight whole years from 2014 until the start of the Russian-Ukrainian war. Wait till she sees, maybe she's too young, I've never heard of her myself. To see the results of shock and awe that the United States and the United Kingdom visited 
on the capital city of Iraq, Baghdad, just 20 years ago. Wait till she sees what NATO did to Belgrade for almost 90 days of constant bombardment of a European capital. Wait till she sees what Israel did to Beirut. Wait till she sees what the coalition armed to the teeth by NATO did against the people of Yemen. Wait till she sees what pure evil looks like. Because the buildings in Bakhmut had been evacuated of all the civilians. These buildings were filled with Ukrainian soldiers throughout this, the longest war, the longest battle, rather, of the 21st century. There were no civilians in these ruined buildings, but there were hundreds of thousands of civilians killed by the United States and the United Kingdom and by France and by other NATO countries in the wars that they launched, illegal wars, unprovoked wars, wars without a shred of credibility once the lies that fueled them were unmasked even for the most stupid Amy Klobuchar's in our political class. It is the inability of our leaders not just to see how others see them but to see the road down which we are marching. And here I turn to the putative next General Secretary of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, seeking to open an office in Japan, that well-known North Atlantic outpost. Ben Wallace, with his peculiar ancient hatred of Russia, coming from his own regiments, charge of the Light Brigade at Balaclava in the Crimean War more than 150 years ago. This ancient hatred of Russia is a particularly, peculiarly British thing. That's why the Wall Street Journal, of all places, highlighted today the difference between the US and the UK in this conflict. According to the Wall Street Journal, the United States is far more careful than the United Kingdom, which it describes as reckless in its conduct, in close proximity to the front line. According to the Wall Street Journal, Britain's special air service, its special boat service, its spooky secret soldiers from MI6 are operating close to the front line. Who knows, maybe they were even involved in the very nasty, short, brutish incursion by Ukrainian terrorists in American armored vehicles that invaded Russia briefly this week 
and murdered civilians in their homes and in their cars. What an act of war. What an act of valiant soldiery to sneak in and murder civilians thinking you were safe in your American armored vehicle. 70 of them. I hope all 70 of them were killed by the Russian forces once the surprise element had been lost. Well, the British involved in this crime, the Americans say they definitely were not. The British care not that they are dragging Europe into the conflagration which might end in Russian use of nuclear weapons. Russia has repeatedly warned on this and its warnings have been ignored. Perhaps the British think the Russians are bluffing. I am perfectly certain that they are not. I posted a meme today, thanks to the person who made it, of Zelensky in an embrace with the diminutive dwarfish thief Rishi Sunak. The words underneath the pictures are, my people are tired, they're cold, they're hungry. And Zelensky says, I'm very sorry to hear that, Mr. Sunak, but please give me some more money. Our governments, who are presiding over collapsing economies, mass poverty in their lands, destruction of the social and cultural infrastructure in their country. Our leaders are handing over billions and billions of euros and pounds to Zelensky while their own people are lying distressed on the floor. Just think about that. You'll have plenty of time to respond to it in the course of the next hour and 40 minutes. So, as I said, fasten your seatbelts. It's the mother of all talk shows. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Isa Ali was our World Cup correspondent. He brought us the joy from Qatar that had been so rained upon. 
by the sniveling commentariat in Western countries. How sick they were, as it turned out to be the best World Cup in history. So who better for me to talk to about the events in Valencia on Sunday than the one and only Isa Ali, freelance journalist and political analyst. Isa, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. I know that as a football man yourself, you will have been as disgusted as me at what happened to Vinicius Jr. What is it about this brilliant young 22-year-old Brazilian footballer that gets them so upset in the garden? Thanks for having me, George. Great to see you as always. And uh, yeah, you know, it's just been uh, disgusting to see uh, someone, as you mentioned there, 22 years old. He's still so young. I mean, I remember myself at 22 years old. Uh, you know, all of us do. Uh, perhaps you're not in control of your, uh, say, let's say, your reactions to certain things. And, uh, you know, there have been people who have been saying, oh, you know, Vinicius, uh, he responds to the crowds. Well, why, why shouldn't he? He's a young man. He's there to play football. He's a very good footballer. He's one of the best footballers in the world. Definitely uh, perhaps the top three young footballer in the world. Uh, and he has to put up with this type of disgusting racial hatred. And I think um, uh, an, an aspect of this is that he's so good. These fans seem to think, I call them fans, they're not fans. These thugs seem to think that he's, uh, they're getting under his skin if they do this. Does the opposite, actually. It just makes him play better. But leaving the fans aside, it's the constant. We see this especially. I don't want to pick out these countries because there are many countries that have problems uh, with racism. Uh, I would say uh, this country, England, of course, like any country, has problems with racism. But in football, you could argue that uh, they've managed to stamp it out. They've stamped it out on the terraces. There's a general societal acceptance that uh, it's wrong. But in countries like Spain and Italy, it's not just so much the society and the fans. It's the authorities. Uh, you know, players getting sent off. We've seen this happen with players like Balotelli uh, in Italy and other players uh, where they're getting punished because they're responding to the racism in uh, the crowd. And it's really uh, there that it starts, because if the fans think, well, not only are we not going to get in trouble for it, but the players are going to get uh, in trouble for responding to it, then they're just going to keep doing it and they're just going to keep getting encouraged by it. So I think it's shocking. I think, uh, you know, Vinicius needs to perhaps think about leaving uh, Real Madrid. I know he's happy at the club. I know they're uh, pretty much the greatest club in the world at the moment and have been for many years. So uh, he's probably not in a rush to leave. But if he did, how embarrassing would that be for La Liga and for Spain that one of the best young players in the world uh, decides to just up sticks and leave because he can't handle this disgusting racism. And not again, not just the racism, the way it's being handled uh, by the authorities as well. This kind of like Oh, it's a small issue. Maybe some fines here. Maybe a few games played behind closed doors. There has to be real consequences. Yes, uh, and political consequences. I've heard nothing from uh, the Spanish political leadership, certainly nothing from Borrell, who considers that Europe is the garden and the rest of the world is the jungle. I haven't heard him comment on the jungle behavior of the tens of thousands of people involved in this. This is a point I wanted to make, Isa, to you. This was not a small minority. I've seen the footage and reviewed it very carefully. It was all round the crowd, and it was tens of thousands of people, and it was throughout the entire game. Now, why wouldn't a 22-year-old react if tens of thousands of people were making monkey noises every time he got on the ball. 
And as he himself put it, this is not the first time this happened. Not even the second time. Not even the third time. It happens to him everywhere that he goes. And so I'm not sure what that tells us about Spanish society. Some people tell me that Valencia is a very provincial place, uh, a backwater, uh, a stronghold of uh, right-wing parties and so on. But as Vinicius pointed out, it doesn't only happen in Valencia. It's happened all over the country. It is endemic on the European mainland, is it not? It, it certainly appears that way from the outside looking in. I mean, uh, he posted a video, Vinicius that is, uh, he posted a video on his social media uh, the past few days with, uh, it was kind of like a compilation reel of all the times that this has happened and the kind of songs that they're singing. I don't even want to repeat them here. Uh, the chants that they're singing uh, all across different clubs, uh, different uh, rivalries, if you will, different parts of the country, as you said, it's not just Valencia. You know, and I think... Um, you know, going back to Boris' com comments about Europe being the uh, garden and the rest of the world being the jungle, well, the garden is actually uh, in big trouble. They've uh, essentially succumbed to uh, the agenda of the United States. They just came out of a winter where millions of people couldn't afford heating and uh, were essentially having to pay more expensive gas prices because the U.S. is imposing its own uh, energy on uh, the region at much higher prices. It's got billions and billions of dollars going out to the uh, rest of the world uh, while, uh, you know, in places like Ukraine, for example, while people at home suffer. So he wants to talk about uh, Europe being a garden. Well, the weeds are overgrown. The grass hasn't been cut for a while and there are uh, cracks in all the tiles at home, if that's the uh, uh, kind of analogy he wants to raise. Um, and yeah, you know, and, and this is just another stain on the reputation of the mainland. Again, you know, um, it, it's funny. I I got a flight back. I was on holiday last week. I got a flight back and I was sitting next to some uh, people, yeah, people from uh, this country, the United Kingdom, and uh, we were having conversations about a, a variety of things. And yes, there's racism everywhere, you know, people having open conversations. But again, there's a certain element in this country of social uh, non-acceptance of certain attitudes and especially in football. And I can imagine if that had happened, in, you know, you can't even imagine it happening in a Premier League ground, let alone many times. But if oh, a Premier God. League football had been racially abused, you know that it would have been uh, all over the papers. Every politician would have condemned it. Uh, the Football Association would have come down hard on whichever club that would have been. Other fans and the whole football community would have uh, kind of come together. So I think that's something that should be commended about uh, British football and uh, you know English football, even Scotland as well. Um, but then you look at places again like Spain, like Italy, Eastern Europe, many players who are uh, black who have gone to Eastern Europe to play for teams and just you know, had a nightmare there. What, what kind of message is this sending about uh, the uh, the attitudes in those country, uh, the brazenness? And again, it's 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 one thing for the people on the fans to do it. It's totally another thing when there's no uh, you know consequences to it. And it's not just the national football associations as well, UEFA and FIFA. Uh, you know, it's it's a tired cliche, but they have to do more. Yeah, you know, you'd get more of a fine, I think, for uh, a streaker running across the pitch than you would for uh, somebody. Uh, you know, being caught for racism or a club being held to account for uh, their fans. And there need to be real, real consequences, including points being docked, because it's the only way teams are going to understand and learn. Uh, that last point is particularly important, I think. Uh, I'm not here saying that there's no racism in Britain, though, as I've always said, if you think Britain's racist, you've never lived in France, 
Perhaps I need to amend that now. You've, you've never been to Valencia. But it is inconceivable that what happened on Sunday in Valencia could happen at a Premier League football ground in Britain. It would never happen. And if it did, uh, the consequences would be so condign that the fans would never dare to repeat it, let alone do it every week in different football stadia throughout the uh, country. So this is an unusual uh, aspect in which we can say that Britain is in the lead in Europe in the civilizational stakes. On football, at least, Isa. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, definitely on football. I think, look, um, like I was saying, you know, uh, and the reason I, I raised that point about, uh, you know, the people I was talking to on the flight back is because, you know, I don't know why. Maybe some people feel comfortable saying slightly racist things to me. Maybe they think I, I pass <laughs> as not being a person of color or something. Uh, uh, and people say things. a white man. Yeah, I pass as a white man sometimes. I don't know. Like, it's, it's good and bad in some ways. And, and, you know, people say things about immigration and crime and you know, London's different to the rest of the country. And, and I'll just, you know, politely push back. But um, it's 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 a different level completely to what you see in parts of the continent. Like, it can't be compared. And, uh, and that's because, actually, you know, people in this country, people of colour in particular, fought back and pushed back over years and sometimes physically had to, uh, you know, go up against people. People like uh, the Headhunters and Combat 18 and the British National Party and all these other parties that are now, uh, you know, wouldn't even dare to say certain things in part of the country. Uh, and that's the way it has to be. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, maybe those countries haven't gone through that process yet where, um, you know, play around and find out, basically. And, and I think uh, uh, it is getting to that point. And, you know, you look at countries like Spain and Italy, fine, I don't know how you know, multicultural or uh, in that way they are. But a country like France still has deep issues with racism. And it's one of the most, uh, at least demographically diverse countries uh, in the world. We know, of course, France is deeply racist, Islamophobic, everything else. Uh, but again, you know, um, I say that to say that, yes, England has its problems and we know what they are. And since Brexit, they've been worse. Uh, but even then, there is a lot of pushback. I mean, we see Suella Braverman saying things like, it's my, what is she, my, my dream to deport people to, to Rwanda and so on. But there is pushback in society. There is pushback in some aspects of the media, not all. There are people that find that kind of thing disgusting. And I'm just not sure whether if European politicians say the same kind of stupid things, uh, societally there is that pushback or whether there is just a kind of widespread, uh, widespread acceptance of it. Uh, so, yeah, um, I think uh, uh, definitely more needs to be done. But again, just going back to the football aspect, it comes from the authorities. When FIFA and UEFA hand out you know, pitiful fines, George, you're, you're, I'm assuming, a Celtic man like myself, right? Uh, I think Celtic would have got fined more for holding Palestine banners than some of these clubs are getting fined uh, for racism. So that just goes to show where their priorities lie and uh, whether they're taking it seriously enough. Uh, very much uh, agree with that. But isn't it linked to something else also? Uh, it's linked, obviously, to the socio-economic, cultural collapse of uh, European countries, which has been vastly accelerated uh, by the events of the last 500 days uh, or so, the economic war uh, being waged against Russia. But if your leaders and your media spend all of their time spewing out hatred against Johnny Foreigner over there, you're sanctioning Iran, you are refusing to 
condemn the murder of Palestinians in the street. You are calling every uh, uh, Tom, Dick and Harry in power in so-called third world countries, a dictator, a tyrant. You're fueling war, you're making war, you're involved in occupation. It's hardly surprising if you're a section of your public uh, evince these kind of uh, hateful uh, racist attitudes towards Johnny Foreigner in front of you, even if he is <laughs> being paid 500,000 euros a week and he's playing for Real Madrid, he's black, so you can abuse him. Yeah, I mean, look, George, like, like you said, spot on. I mean, at the end of the day, what's the easiest thing for the ruling uh, elites and the ruling class to do is to pick on the vulnerable. To pick, And we've seen it here, you know, picking on uh, black and brown and other people, picking on disabled people, uh, casting them off somehow as being scroungers and so on. We have seen that here, but also, of course, in, in Europe as well. What the class, the ruling class want to do is to make uh, all the people below them who they consider to be less than human and useless eaters and so on uh, to fight against each other and to be bogged down. Now, in some instances, I see uh, shoots of hope. I see people do, coming together and realizing that their enemies uh, probably uh, aren't or definitely aren't uh, people of other races, but are people who sit in Davos and make these great uh, pronunciations and proclamations of how the world should be. And, uh, you know, you're not going to have cash anymore. We're going to tell you what medicine you have to take and uh, all of this, this other arrogance that they have. So I think there is a bit of an awakening and that may actually be linked to this. Maybe that's why there's such an acceleration of this kind of racist, anti-refugee kind of, uh, or anti-migrant hatred and just general racism uh, in general because uh, they're worried that people will come together and if black and white people look at each other and brown and black and white and all the races come together and say, hang on a minute, we have the same opposition, we have the same enemy and that's the people sitting above us stealing the money, laundering the money through uh, multiple different ways while our grandparents can't even heat their homes and are freezing to death and can't eat and so on and we're struggling to even put food on the table actually we might not be the problem and you might not be the problem it's them so i think that's something that really uh, should be and it's great that somebody like yourself has such a powerful voice because you always hit that message home and i say to all the people uh, who are watching this evening and uh, at all times that this is at the end of the day the conundrum you know people have to look past their differences not buy into this racist uh, kind of hate campaign against each other and this uh, division and division on everything they want men and women to hate each other they want uh, you know people to uh, trans people and straight people they want all these cultural issues to come up and dominate and for us to be distracted by these culture war issues mm. uh, rather than focusing on who is actually fueling this stuff and uh, so anyone watching this i would always say the same is to think uh, who, whose interest is it uh, who benefits from uh, of course all of this type of propaganda and hatred in the media you know there was there's a hotel in lisbon uh, which housed the bilderberg group uh, at the weekend people don't know about it because although there were lots of journalists present they had all promised that they would not report who was there and what was said. But ironically, the people inside that hotel, if somehow one could have peacefully, non-violently captured that hotel and its inhabitants and taken them away to a desert island somewhere and left them there, everybody in the world would, be, would have been better off. If you're looking for criminals, there was more criminals in a Lisbon hotel at the weekend than in any jungle in Cali or anywhere else. 
Isa Ali, thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, is sport the new battleground against racism? A, yes, B, no. You can vote until the end of the show. Let me take a quick break. I'll be right back. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Nico House, one of our most popular American guests, is a commentator, founder of MCSC Network, and always welcome on the show. Nico, uh, before we turn to some of the big American stories breaking today that you have been uh, highlighting on social media. You were, of course, in another lifetime, a sports commentator. So uh, yes. just before we turn to Matters US, I'm pretty sure uh, that you took a keen interest in what happened to Vinicius Jr. So profound was the impact on Brazil that they switched off the lights that normally illuminate Christ the Redeemer, the magnificent statue of the Saviour above Rio de Janeiro. Brazil has been shaken to the core by what happened in Valencia, hasn't it? Yeah, no, 100%. And like the context for that, people that don't know, Brazil is the has the most Africans in the world next to Nigeria. Nigeria is the only country in the entire world that has more Africans. The country is rich with African religions, uh, African dances, uh, I was gonna say comida, food, all that good stuff. And they have, it isn't like the States where you'll you you know you'll see maybe the, the white superstars have all the endorsement deals, the white athletes have greater endorsement deals than the black, it doesn't work like that here. If you go and see like a telephone commercial or a cell phone commercial, it's gonna be a black athlete. It's gonna be most likely one of the black players from the Brazilian soccer team. They don't discriminate in the same way when it comes to those type of things. Not saying that classism and colorism doesn't exist here, but when it comes to racism, they they take it a lot more seriously. And it becomes a lot more personal, especially when you consider the fact that Real Madrid has obviously been so dominant in, in La Liga. But like it's also known as um, Brazil East, right? Just because so many Brazilian stars have played <laughs> for Real Madrid. It's kind of they always people joke out here and say like they keep stealing them from Brazil. Um, but it, it's it's sad. It's sad what we've seen taking place. Uh, and it's also, unfortunately, not all that uncommon, which I feel like a lot of people are figuring out. Well, we stole uh, one of them, Casimiro, uh, and is next to Eric Cantona. Uh, he's my favorite player of the last 30 years or more at Manchester United. Uh, the, uh, the Brazil East has been shaken by it, but there's been actually a backlash uh, amongst uh, fans. When I went on Twitter and called up, as it were, to hashtag uh, Vinicius Jr., the first three hashtags I found were Vinicius go home, Vinicius out, and uh, one uh, which is unmentionable. Um, Far from turning on the racists in Valencia, the Spanish football establishment 
and the political class in Valencia have turned on Vinicius. He should apparently yeah, Vinny, have ignored. He should yeah, have ignored Vinny, tens of thousands of people chanting monkey noises at him. It, it's 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 upsetting to know like Vinny, what they call him in Brazil, Vinny Jr. is not alone. I know as crazy as it sounds, people forget. I, I believe it was during the World Cup where they were cheering on these 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 black footballers, and then the moment that they didn't come through to win, oh, excuse me, not the World Cup, the Euro Cup, my apologies. The moment that they didn't come through and pull through for England and the end, they were immediately monkeys. Ronaldinho went through this while he was in Barcelona. Uh, Eto, a Cameroonian uh, soccer player, also went through this. There, There is, you know, speculation that throughout the years, the reason that there haven't been more uh, uh, black players to win the ball in Dior, get the endorsement deals, um, is because they're black and, and they wanted the marketability to kind of lean towards white athletes. I mean, I personally even have a theory that the reason that they have kind of propped up Messi and to be fair, got rid of, and I do mean got rid of basically every black superstar in Barcelona, including Edso in his prime was because they wanted Messi to be the undisputable face of soccer internationally. And there, there, that led to Ronaldinho kind of being removed, and you see his decline because it was kind of somewhat unjust. Eto being removed, Neymar and Messi have had their beefs, Mbappe and Messi don't even get along right, it seemingly don't even get along right now. And we know what Mbappe was even called by Argentinians and some Spaniards. So this has been a consistent problem in soccer, and I don't feel like it's being substantively addressed. And it's probably because they're still making a bunch of money, right? The organizations themselves and FIFA as an organization is still making a bunch of money. And they're just like, this is the way things have always been. But I was watching one interview where they said this doesn't just start uh, at, at the, the highest levels. This is actually permeating through the youth leagues. The moment that there's a, a black kid from another country like Brazil or another country in Africa like Cameroon that's athletically gifted, they immediately start attacking those kids. The white Spaniards and the other Europeans start attacking those kids, six, seven, eight years old, to kind of let them know their place. And that in turn actually affects how they perform on the pitch. Like they're not as assertive. It's hard to build up chemistry. And if you know anything about soccer or sports in, or team sports in general, if they if the coaches and the management doesn't feel like you are a, a, a part of chemistry, a positive chemistry building, no matter how skilled you are, they will remove you from the lineup and you won't even get the chance to show how great you are on that pitch. So like it's it's a problem that's been permeating throughout the youth leagues, throughout professional soccer. And yeah, do they get, you know, obviously black Brazilian players and Brazilian players in general and black players in general do get a lot of opportunity overseas. That's not really what we're arguing here. What we're arguing is, is that there is never going to be a black messy as long as this behavior is allowed to be permitted and, and and at least ignored. I won't say it's encouraged, but it's at bare minimum ignored in FIFA and, and the major leagues. Nico, let me turn, although I could talk to you about that for much longer, uh, let me turn to uh, a big story that you've been highlighting uh, today, uh, which is what is fast becoming a pattern. We now know, thanks to the Durham report, that the FBI uh, were central to the Russiagate hoax, which mm -hmm. has been now 
entirely discredited. But now we're discovering that the FBI were up to their neck in the so-called January 6th insurrection. Tell us what the audience doesn't yet know. So the reason that we know the FBI was up to their necks in the January 6th insurrection is because the FBI agents told us so, which is crazy to say. And some people might say, well, what is their motive in coming out right now? If you actually go back and watch the testimony that they make in front of Congress, they wanted to come out sooner, except they faced retaliation from the very same FBI. One gentleman even describes the fact that once he tried to come out and expose the corruption, not just uh, about the FBI being involved in January 6th, but the way that certain people have been denied their due, due process simply for being there that day. And he wanted to expose all this. They removed him from his post, moved his family across the country to a different post. The moment he was about to check in, they wouldn't let him check into his new duty station. And his things, his family, they held his family's, uh, uh, um, uh, I was about to say move ice. I mean, I've been in Brazil too long. I'm trying not to speak Portuguese. Um, they, they moved their families. They kept their family's belongings for weeks and they weren't allowed to move into their house and they withheld his pay. And then they suspended him without warning, which usually in those situations, if you are being flagged by an institution like the FBI or the military or something like that, you're not even supposed to be allowed to switch duty stations. So there's that. So that's just one small example. So what does this actually mean? Well, it means that people like myself would have been saying that the only way that the FBI doesn't stop and prevent January 6th from happening, given what we know, the fact that they uh, arrested Tario prior to what, two magazines, they arrested him two days before January 6th happened. They were aware, multiple agencies around the area in Baltimore, FBI agencies specifically, Baltimore, DC, they were aware of it. All of these, even Nancy Pelosi was made aware that January 6th was a huge possibility and nothing was done about it. In fact, they literally opened the, let, let, opened the red rope and walked them in down the red carpet. It was kind of crazy. And I said, the only way that this is possible is if the FBI was in on it. And lo and behold, they were. In other words, not only could it have been prevented just from a logistical standpoint, and not only could they have set people in place to prepare for what they knew was coming, but they had people there on the ground to prevent lives from being lost. Somebody died because of law enforcement that day. And law enforcement could have prevented all of that because they had boots on the ground. Mind you, uh, Nancy Pelosi saved the United States economy during the Great Depression, according to Joe Biden this week, which makes her approximately 120 years old. She's looking quite well for a lady of such advanced age. I was going to say it isn't that crazy to believe that Nancy Pelosi or Dan or Diane Feinstein, for that matter, is 111 years old. Good God. Um, but it's the, the whole situation right now. So in the same month, right, we just found out the FBI was involved in a massive scandal to accuse a president, a sitting president of colluding with an adversarial nation, according to the U.S., to overthrow an election. And it turns out not it wasn't just like mismanagement. It wasn't, oh, we kind of got this wrong after a thorough investigation. The inve the conclusion was the investigation should have never happened. Now, I don't know about you, George, but in my opinion, that's tantamount to treason. 
because it was for a political objective to overthrow a sitting president, refuse to accept the results of an election, to overthrow a sitting president and put in the person that they wanted to be in charge. That's treason. And in within a couple of weeks, we also find out that the FBI was also involved in January 6th, which we don't know. I mean, to be fair, leading up to January 6th, maybe not the day of, but leading up to January 6th, Donald Trump was still president. So now if I'm Donald Trump, I have two examples of my intelligence community trying to commit treason effectively or at least being complicit in it, even if all of them weren't involved. And at that point, how can we as a country uh, or how can the U.S. as a nation trust anything that comes from the FBI or the CIA for that matter, for other reasons? But how can we believe that our gut, the government is legitimate, that those institutions are legitimate? I don't believe they're legitimate, nor have I ever believed they're legitimate. But now we're in a different stratosphere of like these are things that the U.S. would invade another country over. Now, of course, once upon a time, uh, what you've just said uh, was uh, common currency. It was uh, the prevailing narrative. It was the orthodoxy of politically progressive, radical people. But almost all of the so-called progressive, so-called radicals have gone over to the other side, haven't they? They, they oh, are now the cheerleaders for these these uh, these organizations, these institutions, and people like thee and me who still say what we all used to say, well, we must be right wing or we must be <laughs> even Russian agents. Yeah, I've just had this conversation five minutes ago. Seriously, George, like they say, well, well, it seems like libertarian and pro Trumpers are the ones who are pushing this quote unquote narrative about the FBI. I said, the narrative that the FBI is full of it? I'm confused. I'm a leftist. I believe that the FBI was full of it 10 years ago. I believe that they were full of it yesterday. I believe they were full of it when they took part in killing MLK. F, you know, JFK, Fred Hampton, and the other and, and, and all the other Black Panthers that they either uh tormented uh physically or emotionally, like they have always been this way. This is my opinion has not changed. It just so happens to be that the the face that the faces that they may be oppressing or intimidating at the time might change. But that's the problem when you are consistent in a very inconsistent political environment right now. Everybody wants to go the way the wind blows and it's not based off of principle, it's not based off of morality, it's not based off of consistency, it's based off of whether or not they like the person that they're that is being gone and sought after like that's what it comes they didn't like trump therefore the fbi must be right they didn't like trump whether it be january 6th or they didn't like trump and therefore the fbi might must be right about russia and i remember a day where black activists literally ran to russia because of the treatment they were getting in the u.s edward snowden didn't he went to russia well we're he uh, he, 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 go ahead yeah no, I was just going to finish with a Malcolm X quote. We're for justice, whoever it's for, whoever it's against. And we're for the exactly. truth, whoever is telling it. 100%. 100%. And that's, that consistency will, be, will get you called all kinds of things. I don't, I don't really care about the labels anymore. But one thing you're never going to be able to call me, and definitely I know they're never going to be able to call you, is inconsistent. You can hate me, but you're going to hate me because I am rigidly consistent.
you and me both. Thank you, Nico House, and enjoy Brazil. Uh, you can Absolutely. we'll do the interview in Portuguese next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Bryce Green is always a popular guest of ours. He's an independent writer and political analyst from the United States, and I'm glad to say he joins us now. Bryce, can I ask you first about the, uh, I thought, uh, quite significant article in the Wall Street Journal today, the one that said uh, the U.S. is behaving responsibly uh, in the Ukraine. It's the British that are the reckless ones. Does that ring true to you? Well, certainly the latter part. Uh, the British have been very reckless with respect to the Ukraine war. But to say that the United States is not being irresponsible is, I, I think, laughable. I mean, remember the run up to the war, the United States uh, refused to negotiate with Vladimir Putin about, you know, very legitimate security interests. Putin has been saying for decades that NATO at its border is unacceptable. And that that would cause very uh, intense security concerns for the Russians. The Americans have known this since 2008, uh, if not earlier, and have continued to push for the expansion of NATO, continue to ignore what they understand to be Russian red lines, continue to escalate the war uh, in order to, uh, as the saying goes, to use Ukraine to fight Russia. And after thousands and thousands of lives, we don't know how many, but thousands of lives, they continue the line. Uh, they continue to supply weapons. They continue to voice unconditional support for the war. They continue to escalate. And now we have this F-16 business. Uh, it seems that there really aren't any adults in the room. And so to call the U.S., uh, you know, uh, anything like a responsible party, I think is laughable. You know, when uh, this all began, Joe Biden was asked about F-16s and uh, Abram tanks and so on. And he said, uh, no, we'll not be sending these. That would be tantamount to World War Three. What changed? Well, nothing really has changed. The only thing that we could say that's changed is that the U.S. officials have really gotten uh, a bit cocky about how Vladimir Putin is going to respond. Uh, you can read about it if you look at the reporting on the matter. Uh, U.S. officials have been saying, oh, well, we shouldn't escalate this far. That might uh, cause Putin to escalate in response. But then when they did it, uh, uh, Putin would be restrained. And then U.S. officials would take that as evidence that they could escalate further. They can say that, well, Putin didn't escalate when we started training Ukrainian soldiers in the United States. Putin didn't escalate when we... The U.K. sent depleted uranium. Putin didn't escalate whoa, after any of the uh, escalations on the Western side of this conflict. And therefore, that Putin will never escalate. And to me, this is just 
insanely reckless. The, the fact that Putin hasn't deployed nuclear weapons yet shouldn't preclude the possibility from that happening in the future, shouldn't preclude the possibility that some things will get out of hand that are beyond the control of either Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin that could escalate into uh, a nuclear exchange. The idea that the U.S. can continue to escalate, can continue to, uh, I guess, poke the bear, so to speak, can continue to uh, pour weapons, pour advanced weaponry, money, uh, and support into this conflict without a serious escalation is it's just ridiculous. I mean, Putin has been saying for uh, quite a while, it's like, what if the F-16s are being flown from uh, NATO countries, the uh, air bases? What are what is Russia supposed to do? Are they supposed to attack a NATO country? Uh, these are questions that have been swirling around on the Russian side for quite a long time. They're giving serious consideration to it, given their own uh, geopolitical and strategic objectives. Uh, but that conversation doesn't seem to be happening on the U.S. side. Uh, and this entire question of how much can we put push Putin, that's what they seem to be asking. Uh, in the Harper's uh, cover story, uh, what are we doing in Ukraine? It was a very good piece and uh, very hopeful to see that in the Western press, even if it is uh, in Harper's and not in the New York Times. Uh, it's hopeful to see, but it's also terrifying because the author spoke to a Pentagon analyst who had been talking uh, about the dangers of pushing up against Russia, against continuing to uh, push NATO up against Russia's borders. And the the Pentagon analyst uh, rightly compared it to if Russia would place missiles on Canada's uh, border with the U.S. or Mexico's border with the U.S. How would the U.S. react to that? Uh, well, when this analyst started asking high-level military officials uh, this question, this hypothetical, uh, surprisingly, apparently none of them had actually given it the thought. Uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, well, damn, I didn't really view what we were doing to the Russians in that light. Didn't yeah, think uh, of that Are one. they children? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and these yeah, are supposed well, to be, you, you know, you, credentialed you adults. That. <laughs> I think partly they are. You know, Bryce, a lot of people think we're run by James Bonds, but I've always thought we're run by Austin Powers. It is entirely possible that they hadn't thought of that. It really is yeah. hard, though, it is for people to believe. Uh, I mean, exactly. I sat amongst you can these people for uh, almost 30 years in Parliament. <laughs> I know that most of it, you wouldn't send most of them out to buy a loaf. Never mind come up with a world-conquering conspiracy plan. Right. And if you look at the media reporting on this, I mean, I'm sure you know and your audience knows that the media class of people is almost the same, uh, you know, almost one-to-one -one as the political class, right? These class of people who make the decisions, yeah. who write about the decisions, who give their opinions about the what's going on in the world. This class of people really views it the same way. Uh, they genuinely view this conflict as a, a way to preserve democracy against Russian autocracy uh, without really understanding that if you provoke a war in Ukraine, Ukraine will be destroyed. And no country that has just been destroyed is going to have a vibrant democracy at the end of that destruction. Uh, Branko Marchetich had a great article in Jacobin about how the state of Ukrainian democracy isn't strong. Uh, you know, press freedoms are deteriorating. Uh, 
opposition parties are being banned. Neoliberal policies are being enacted uh, in the in the shock of war. Uh, in fact, I wrote, uh, I think, last week about how despite all of these things, Western institutions are pretending like it's not happening. Reporters Without Borders, uh, you know, a major international uh, NGO, they actually increased Ukraine's press freedom score this year uh, over last year's score, saying that Ukraine is actually more free, that reporters have more freedom, that the media ecosystem is more diverse. Uh, to anyone paying attention to this, it's it's laughable. But these are the assumptions that really govern the way these people operate. And if these are the assumptions that they're operating on, you can't really be surprised when they're making batshit insane decisions about how to proceed with this. Why haven't we heard people talking about negotiations? Well, because people think that Putin's Hitler. Uh, Why haven't we talked? Why? Why is no one in the press uh, arguing against the Biden's endless escalation? Well, it's because they genuinely think that they are on the side of democracy and that if they were to push for negotiations, they'd be asking, uh, you know, Ukrainians to sacrifice democracy. Uh, so it's it's a garbage in, garbage out situation. If you don't understand what's going on, you're not going to make good but decisions. The, 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 not quite. But the more they talk about democracy, the the faster I count my spoons, uh, the the countries that are talking most about democracy are rapidly shredding their own democracy. The countries that talk about freedom of the press are the people who've thrown Julian Assange into a dungeon. France, which talks about how Iran behaves towards protesters, is clubbing its own people down, gassing them, shooting them, with rubber bullets, sometimes lead, uh, on an almost daily basis. Our countries are not, increasingly, not democracies. And yet, we're doing all this for Ukrainian democracy? Seriously? (laughs) Right. It's it's a long-standing tradition of uh, Western, quote-unquote, democracies to justify their imperial ambitions and justify their foreign excursions by saying that we're doing this to, you know, promote democracy. I mean, it's the same thing that the, the colonizers did in the, uh, the early colonial era. You know, we're here to spread Christianity. I mean, it's, if you are raised in the ideological environment that doesn't challenge those assumptions, well, then those things aren't going to sound as crazy as they do to the rest of the world. But here in the United States, uh, and I'm sure the UK is a uh, very similar. We're some of the most propagandized people on earth. Uh, propaganda is a billions and billions and billions of dollar industry. We've perfected the art of manipulating and lying and spinning and selling nonsense to people. Uh, and that's essentially the way our democracy operates. I mean, everything from our elections to our news media systems, uh, all of them are based on spin, public relations, e- uh, that entire field of, I mean, it, it, you can call it psychological manipulation. Uh, I mean, that's really what we're seeing here. And when you have peace activists in the United States, uh, so-called peace activists, saying that the United States should be spending more money on weapons to Ukraine, that we need to have solidarity with Ukraine uh, in the name of democracy, in the name of social justice. Well, I mean, then you can really see how far that these tactics that these 
uh, manipulations have gone in the United States, in the West, uh, because, quote unquote, serious people genuinely believe it. Even as you have an entire country being destroyed, even as you have arms manufacturers uh, foaming at the mouth, even as you have BlackRock saying that they're going to be one of the people in charge of rebuilding Ukraine, even as you have all of that going on, you still have people who believe that the United States is over there, that the United States is getting involved, that the entire Western project is designed to promote democracy and democratic values and freedom. Uh, It doesn't hold up to any sort of scrutiny, but, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. You know that. Your audience knows this. No, it's, I, it's interesting. No, no, we, but we, we need to know. Uh, we need to know how all this uh, happened and more importantly, how we can, if it's not too late, uh, get out of it. Uh, it's OK here um, because we're all in the bubble. We are in that propagandized bubble in your country and mine in the European Union. But as the great Glenn Greenwald pointed out to me on Twitter earlier this evening, this doesn't survive contact with the people outside in the majority world. The the 80, 90, almost 90% majority world. They laugh as the Secretary General of the ANC did to the BBC's Stephen Sacker. They cackled their contempt at our double standards and hypocrisy. That's been one of the biggest stories of the last 500 days, hasn't it? That Latin America, Asia, the Middle East, Africa have said, no, not us, thanks very much, Uh, you're on your own. There's a a line you hear a lot in the U.S., media and probably in the entire Western press is that the world stands behind Ukraine. The world is against Russia. The world is isolating Russia. Well, when you drill down to it, the definition of the world really means Western Europe, the United States, Australia, South Korea, and Japan. The actual majority of the world's population represented by the BRICS bloc, you know, Brazil, Russia, China, South Africa, even the most of the African continent, uh, they're very critical of what the U.S. is doing, what the U.S. has brought upon Ukraine through its expansionary policies, through its stonewalling of negotiations, uh, because they're really more familiar with the realities of U.S. imperialism. These people have been victims of it for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so they're really able to see through the spin about whether or not the world is with Ukraine. Uh, President Lula of Brazil, uh, newly restored, he actually went to a G7 summit and he was there to talk to Zelensky. Uh, But Zelensky actually avoided him. And Lula said, oh, well, you know, Zelensky's a grown man. He knows what he's doing. He's not interested in peace. Uh, And this has been in the long tradition of Lula speaking out against what has been what we're being told about this war. Uh, Lula has said that, well, Brazil won't send weapons to Ukraine because he understands that NATO uh, expansion brought this war to Ukraine. And he understands that only a negotiated settlement is going to solve it. Uh, Now, that's an obvious observation for any serious person. But the fact that this is treated as insane or loony or 
uh, anti-American, as I've even heard it uh, called. It's just a joke. Lula is just understanding that the U.S., the West, is an imperialist power who pushed up against Russia with the deliberate intention of provoking an invasion and that this carnage, this bloodshed that we're seeing in Ukraine is the predictable result. And the only way to stop it is to seriously pursue peace talks. And there are only a few countries in the entire world right now who are actually uh, opposing peace talks in Ukraine. Um, that's, you know, chiefly the United States. When Xi Jinping put forth yeah, the 12-point uh, peace proposal. Only a few, but, but it's a f- yeah, it's only a few, but it's the few that have the veto. Uh, they clearly can veto, have already vetoed. Boris Johnson delivered the veto in person uh, a year ago. Uh, from uh, the UK, he traveled to Kiev to say to Zelensky, do not sign any peace deal that emerges out of the negotiations in Turkey. So. Um, the people who've got the veto are determined to use it. So this war uh, will continue until the last Ukrainian, won't it? Uh, God hopes that it doesn't. I mean, it, uh, I really hope that this war ends sooner rather than later. Uh, if the West would have its way, then yeah, I think you're right. You might see the complete destruction of the Ukrainian state as a as an independent entity. It might turn into some sort of rump state, tin pot dictatorship. I, I, I'm not really sure. But the only way that we can avoid the bloodshed is if people sit down at the negotiating table and if Washington stops obstructing it. And the only way that that's going to happen is if people in the Washington press corps, if the you know opinion makers, thought leaders, as people like to say, uh, start seriously putting pressure on politicians, elected officials, uh, Biden administration officials to actually come to the negotiation table. And we have seen that there are at least a few people within the U.S. government who are understanding that this is an untenable situation, that the quote-unquote long war in Ukraine is, uh, you, you can't fight it. Like, that's a disaster for everyone involved. But the problem is that the only reason that a lot of them believe that is because they believe that the main focus of the U.S. empire should be China. Uh, and if you've been paying attention yeah. to what's going on in China for the last year, for the last several years in, in all actuality, uh, the U.S. is really doing uh, almost exactly what they're doing in Ukraine. They recognize that China has red lines in Taiwan. They understand it fully. And yet they're full with full steam ahead. They are plowing through it. They are increasing the amount of uh, connections between U.S. officials and Taiwanese officials. They're increasing the flow of weapons. They're having the largest ever military drills uh, in that area. They're positioning nuclear submarines in South Korea. This is insanity. Uh, but it's been reported that Xi Jinping actually told Biden explicitly that if the U.S. continues to push in Taiwan, there will be war. China is willing to go to war over it. And polls show that the majority of Chinese are also willing to go to war over Taiwan. So what should sure be the are, U.S. Yeah. position? I, I can it should be you, to take their hands off. I can, I can tell you from uh, down on the street in China uh, that the... The only criticism you hear of the Chinese government on this point is that the Chinese government is being too soft and is not pushing back hard enough against these uh, provocations. Bryce Green, as always, 
uh, an honor actually to hear your wisdom. Thank you for joining us on the Mother of All talk shows. YouTube comments. Uh, Nolene O'Hagan says, George, that was the best monologue I have ever heard. You could have heard a pin drop in our sitting room. Well said, as usual. Thank you, Nolene, and all the O'Hagans. Uh, Baron Saturday says, Pushin' Putin, the new exciting board game for the terminally ill that usually results in death. Grandma loves it. Buy yours today. Hope you're enjoying my Patreon page. Hope you'll join it, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. Lots of new material coming your way. Uh, new patrons, big thanks to Pat Wilson, Sheila, and new moats legend, Russell Bryn. Thanks very much to all of you. And uh, John Orban says, sports is becoming more and more irrelevant. One more distraction from what's really going on. Well, the latter might be true, the former clearly isn't. Uh, There's nothing irrelevant about sport to the lives of people in the world today. Uh, Paul McDonald says, I love professional sports. That's it. Keep politics out. It's escapism. My mind for a few hours has shifted from the dark realities of life. Great questions as always. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Ermias A. Abed. Ermias A. Abeb says, I say these incidents, like the one in Spain, should not be given the kind of coverage it got. It just amplifies the problem rather than solving the problem. Well, if you don't amplify it, how will anyone know it's a problem that needs to be solved? Leslie Hope says, sport is the new battleground against women. That is also true. Andy says, every day I chat about the greatest football team on earth, Manchester United. With my mates, the concept of racism never comes up. Glad the legend Maguire is once again a pivotal player in the latest England setup. Shaw and Rashford too. Graham Briggs-White, who's a legend, Moat's legend, says there's only one race of hominid left on this planet unless they've discovered the existence of the Yeti in the last 15 minutes. The problem is bigotry for any reason people can find to kick down. Sad fact. We should call it ethnicitism. And Paul Vinogradov says sport is tribalism masquerading as entertainment. Tribalism and racism are at root not so different. People take what they want from it. If they have racist attitudes or ideas, sport will feed those. If not, the same. Thanks uh, to all my friends on Patreon. Do consider joining. It will cost you less than a cup of tea in an insalubrious cafe in the shabbiest part of town. Kenny, the legend, is in Acton. And he has a song. Can't wait to hear it. Go ahead, Ken. Hi, George. First, I'd like to apologise to Hi. yourself and all the listeners for the murdering of Little Discoop the last time. The trouble was I heard the music up too loud. I couldn't even hear what tone I was singing and I listened to playback and it was cringing to listen to it. It wasn't your finest so, sorry hour. For that. No. It wasn't your no, finest wasn't hour. You've had better I've only actually rehearsed it for half an hour, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. What have you got for right. us tonight? I want to sing a, a song I used to sing quite often on the karaoke in Edinburgh, actually. Well, I'll just uh, break into it now. Uh -huh. okay, break into it now, son. 
Go on yourself, Kenny and Acton. Gave us a room with a view of the beautiful Rhine. They gave us a room with a view of the beautiful Rhine. I gave me a Mario Creek in Texas any old time. I got those up two, three, four occupation GI blues. From my G.I. head to the heels of my dear G.I. shoes. And if I don't go stateside soon, I'm going to blow my fuse. We'll get hot and pepper and black pump on a covered shower. We'll get hot and pepper and black pump on a covered shower. I blow my next month's pay for a slice of Texas cow. We'd like to be heroes, but all that we do here is march. We'd like to be heroes, but all that we do here is march. And well, it's very interesting, Kenny. Very interesting. Well done. Thank you very much. Elvis Presley, GI Blues. That was possibly... The last days of the world's benevolent attitude towards GIs, towards the American military, towards America. It wasn't that long before in West Side Story when it could credibly be said whilst tap dancing, I want to be an American. And Elvis his beauty, his, his brilliance, was in a way the turning point. He was the seminal icon and that period of the GI Blues was possibly the closing chapter of American Empire, at least as a loved, relatively loved empire by millions of people. I never loved it because I hate all empires. But I think Europeans, Germans even, where I was just a few days ago, uh, loved the GIs. But nobody loves them now. Nobody loves the projection of American power anymore. We don't love its military form, its hard power form, and we don't love its soft power form either, whether it's economic coercion, bullying, bludgeoning, blackmailing, browbeating, and we don't love its cultural output either. Actually, almost all of the cultural forms which have crossed the Atlantic to Europe over the last 40, 50 years have been to the detriment of the collective culture and societal harmony that exists in, uh, or did exist in Europe. This I firmly believe. All the wrecking culture wars that have come here have come here from the United States. It was the United States that made these divisions of people into their uh, 
to their um, sexual orientation, their uh, sexual desires, the projection of those sexual desires as central, the prevalence of racial politics. I speak on the day that BLM, Black Lives Matter, went bust uh, with a deficit of $8.5 million, even though the leaders were still paying themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars as the ship went down. The division of people, the uh, identity politics, all of these things came from the United States. And it's even reached Old Trafford. Now there's a banner hanging at Old Trafford. I saw it tonight. Uh, LGBTQ plus and however many others have joined the acronym United fans. They've been given space to hang a banner. Why, why do I care what these supporters do in bed? I, I like women in black stockings and high heels. Sh should I get a banner? Manchester United supporters that like women in black stockings and high heels? Would you give me a part of the stand to hang my banner from? Of course you wouldn't because it is entirely irrelevant what my sexual predilections are. And that, at the end of the day, came from the United States. So unwittingly, Kenny and Acton brings the show to a close uh, by summoning up the memory of Elvis with his short hair and his cute uniform as a GI. We didn't know he was sleeping with a 14-year-old girl, the daughter of his commanding officer at the time, but we'll draw a veil over that. He was a devil in disguise, not really. Although devils are out there. And we will continue to monitor them and condemn them. It's coming up to the Turkish presidential election, probably the most important presidential election that will take place this year. Think about that. And Erdogan is going to win it. NATO and the United States is going to lose it. 1.39 million people watched Moats in the last seven days. They were the lucky ones. I was the lucky one that was able to present it. We need to find more lucky ones, though. We need to make that 1.39 million people into 2 million before the end of this year. That's your task. Help me with it, please. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. I'm sorry for overshooting my time by 3 minutes and 30 seconds so far. I'll be back on Sunday at the earlier time of 7 p.m. UK time. Please join me then, God willing, on the mother of all talk shows. Good night.